Hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 134. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike, and my mind is maturing all the time. I'm going to be a fine wine soon. You just had a birthday recently. Yeah, I did have a birthday recently, and uh, there was a lot of fine wine uh, (laughs) got poured down my throat on that day. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Last week, episode 133, we had a special one. If you missed it, you got to go back and check it out. That was our Standards Summit with our brothers over at the Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. We had a really good time celebrating your birthday. We did celebrate my birthday on that day. That was my birthday present for this year. It was a good one, too. We, I really enjoyed that. We heard some Ravel, got those guys listening to some classical music, and we heard two albums of standards, Mike Jones, right. Penn Gillette, and Jeff Hamilton, and we heard Doye, lots of good old classic tunes, and uh, we got their take on all of that. So if you haven't checked out last week's episode, be sure to do that. And also check out Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, those guys are AJ and Johnny, and that's yeah. what they focus on, one standard in each episode, and they listen to different versions of it, play little snippets there for you to hear, talk about the history and what they like and don't like, and well, we're going to go on their show sometime, Yeah, hopefully before the end of the year. We've got four different schedules and three time zones to navigate. Right, yeah, it's really rough. Anyway, you'll find a link to their show in the episode description. Also, at the end of our episode, there'll be a little audio promo. You can get a little sample of what they're all about. You know what we need to do with them? Somebody in the group needs to be like really rich and be able to quit their job and you know, so that we could just do it at any time in the day or night. And I think those people should be us. I think we should just <laughs> get rich. That's right. If they're free, you know, at hour two in the morning, we could we could do that. Because <laughs> you know, sure. we won't have any other responsibilities. Yeah, so anyone who wants to support or be our patron, please do get in touch. <laughs> Yeah, get in touch soon because we live in Japan, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the yen is sinking fast. We're going to be one of those um, South American countries like uh, Argentina in the 1980s when the money completely lost value. I don't don't think that'll happen in Japan, but still, they're very stubbornly letting the yen uh, lose value. Great for tourists, though. Yep. By the way, we've had um, people visit us, and uh, we took them out for dinner. If any listeners out there would like to visit us and buy us dinner- Yeah. (laughs) Please. (laughs) We'd really appreciate it at this point in time. We will return the favor when the yen uh, Absolutely. Uh, comes back in value. Right. <laughs> and let's see, other one of their news, we've got a new interview planned for you. I'm not going to tell you any details because that always jinxes things. Yeah, we always have to put it off. Right. If all goes as planned before the end of the month, we'll have a new interview episode. We haven't done one of those in a while. And we've got some exciting music and a lot of variety in this episode for you as well. As always, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we'll discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. It's all the music in one place on Deezer, CD quality streaming from France. They also have podcasts. You can listen to us there as well. Get everything in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or the recording list or links are not easy to follow on your app, you can always come over and check us out on our host site which is podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Tell a friend. We'd appreciate new listeners by word of mouth. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a little review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. Get some extra info and new releases throughout the week as they come out. You can leave a comment or message there as well. 
And if you'd like to contact us directly, any comments, questions, or you want to pledge us a large sum of money, (laughs) (laughs) our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And for a few weeks now, we've been including music samples. I'd like to give our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips we use are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. I'm just thinking of some of the classical music DJs, because I used to listen to classical music radio when I was much younger, when I was in my 20s. Mm. And some of them were like, they would talk like they couldn't be bothered to talk, you know. I was like, oh, that that piece was Brahms. Symphony Number no. Two. They would just do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I've heard air. some sleepy ones. I don't know how that sleepy kind of approach is, is mm. appealing, but um, I don't know. You know. I just find it too exciting. I can't be sleepy when I'm talking about classical music. Other topics, I don't know. We've got some exciting stuff here this week. We we do, yeah. Actually, we have it all down the list. This was a good week. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think we got some good stuff coming next week too. That's going to mm. be all be good. All right, so there's no news or anything. We're just going to launch into this. Let's this jump a, right in. This first um, classical uh, release is is a big one. This is one of my favorite composers, Monteverdi, Claudio Monteverdi from the um, early Italian Baroque. This would be the year 1600 or so, around those years. And uh, this is his Vespro della Beata Vergine, the uh, Vespers for the Blessed Virgin, composed in, well, not composed, but published in 1610 in Mantua, in Italy, or Mantova, as they'd call it. Now, if anybody knows the opera, Rigoletto, that's that's where the evil duke is from. He's the Duke of Mantua. You know, La Donna Mobile and all that. Anyway, Monteverdi worked there. I'll, I'll give you a little lowdown on him in just a moment. Uh, this is a performance by an ensemble that I've come to like over the last uh, six or seven years, um, Pygmalion, conducted by Raphael Pichon. And they're a, f- a French ensemble. He He's French anyway. I'm guessing they're a French ensemble. And there are also a lot of soloists, and I will mention them as they appear. This is on the Harmonia Mundi label. Okay, so the Vespro della Beata Vergine. This was collected in 1610 in Mantua, as I said, one of the three cities where Monteverdi lived, and the other two were Cremona, which is where Stradivarius lived too and made Mm. his amazing Stradivari violins from the Cremona wood. And the last place that uh, Monteverdi lived was Venice, of course. (laughs) Those are three great places to live, I have to tell you. It's Mm, not a bad life. In Mantua, he was in the service of Duke Vincenzo Gonzaga, which is, I think, a very cool name. Kind of sounds like a cheese, doesn't it, Gonzaga? Yeah, give me some more Gonzaga on that. Yeah, I could could go for that. I bet it's delicious, (laughs) too. (laughs) But just because of the name. There's no record that this massive work was ever performed as a Vespers service. And in fact, it probably was never intended to be one. Um, It may be that Monteverdi assembled it for publication of a set of Vesper pieces composed independently for different occasions. This is something that people used to do in the Renaissance and Baroque era. You'd have a church service, and you'd sort of look in your catalog and say, oh, we need a, um, a, you know, some people write entire masses, but oh, we need this um, particular piece for this part, and they'd uh, just plug it in, you know, independently of all the rest. So I imagine that's what this really is. But these days... These pieces always get programmed as this entire Vespers service. Still, when we listen to music 
we imagine, and I guess we can pretend, that we're at a great church event in 1610, hearing this entire work performed together. So it's all about the imagination. Okay, and when I listened to this piece, because there was a famous recording of this by uh, John Elliott Gardner and the Monteverdi Choir back in the, oh, I don't know now, 1980s, 1990s, and uh, they did a video in uh, St. Mark's in Venice, and that's always put in my head that this piece was written for St. Mark's in Venice, but it wasn't. Hmm. <laughs> now, as we said, Monteverdi eventually worked in Venice, but um, this particular work was all written in Mantua, or Mantova, and movements of it, if any of it, were probably performed there. Anyway, there are two types of composition in this work. Number one, contrapuntal polyphony, like the five psalms, that would be an example of that, the hymn Ave Maristella, and the two settings of the Magnificat. Now, two settings of the Magnificat, we're going to hear only one of them on this recording. There are two in the manuscript. I'll get to that when we get there. The other type of uh, composition is concerti sacri, or solo motets, probably intended to replace the repetition of the Gregorian antiphons after the Psalms. So you'd usually have just have this solo voice at the end of the Psalms, and Monteverdi changed that just to make it a little more interesting. Uh, the Psalms are all composed as counterpoint on a cantus firmus. Uh, cantus firmus is a melody that forms the point of reference, so basically the cantus firmus would be the main line, and then all the other lines would be decorating that. The problem is that the cantus firmus is usually in the middle somewhere, so people don't notice it. But that's the compositional technique there. It's not like a modern pop song where the um, the melody, the main point is like always on top and up front. That's not the case here. The cantus firmus in these pieces are all monotonous reciting notes, so the real musical interest is, of course, in the counterpoint. And that's usually the case with a piece with a cantus firmus. You don't listen to that. That's just the formal sort of um, agent that's kind of creating the uh, structure that all the other voices that you're going to really enjoy right. are being built over. Anyway, that's the technical part. If you want to listen to that, if you have a musical education, you really love that, knock yourself out. But I'm going to try to just describe this in more uh, basic terms. Let's see. CD1, this is two CDs, but the whole piece comes out to about 100 minutes. It's not very long, but it's longer than... CD. Now, if you're going to listen to this on streaming, these are still divided into CD1 and CD2, at least on Deezer, the way we would normally right. hear it. Okay, so CD1 has nine tracks, and uh, this is the beginning. The first um, composition here is Invitatorium Versiculum Eris Responsorium, which is kind of church stuff, and this is the Deus in Adjutorum which means God make haste to save me, and we hear Renault Bresse on the bass, well, he's the bass voice, and we're only going to hear him one more time on this uh, recording, at the, on the very end, <laughs> at the very last track. So you have to have a long memory to remember this voice. He's kind of like the bread in this sandwich, let's say. And what a sandwich it is, as you'll hear. The spectacular opening with its horn fanfares is reused, actually, in this piece from the 1607 opera L'Orfeo, which was the first successful opera ever written successful, meaning that Monteverdi really discovered the way to set language to music, and in this case, specifically the Italian language, with um, accents falling on beats and so that it really becomes more expressive. Earlier operas didn't do that. Okay, they just kind of wrote the words and wrote mm -hmm. a melody to them. If you want to hear it in L'Orfeo, it's the toccata in that work, but it goes in a different direction here. L'Orfeo, by the way, also received its premiere at the Ducal Palace in Mantua, 
and this fanfare is practically a musical emblem of the Gonzagas. It's solid, confident, and strong. One imagines like the Duke himself, or like he liked to think about himself, which is often the case <laughs> with these kinds of people. We need to hear that. So think about this as sort of like a musical coat of arms for the Duke. Let's listen to the opening. We're going to hear the chant, and then this explosive, powerful beginning. Here we go. That is a rousing beginning and really well-recorded and yeah. uh, performed here. All right, so we're off to a great start on this recording. I like the way the pedal bass note registers like, dum, dum. I'm, I'm not doing it in the right key. Unbelievable. Anyway, <laughs> um, through the dense texture of the choir, it really comes through and uh, really kind of hits you in a good place. Also, the wonderful trumpet fanfares. And the sound quality is extraordinarily good, especially on the choir. And this is a very thickly textured movement. It comes across as like solid as stone, as you heard. Okay, <laughs> I really, really love that. Okay, the second track is a psalm, Dixit Dominus. I've heard various versions of this by Monteverdi, but this was the one for this. It means the Lord said. And this is, um, this is a counterpoint on a Canis Firmus, as we said. And like all the psalms, it starts quietly. It's a nice effect, all those uh, Ds sounding in the men's voices. The, not, not the note D, but Dixit, Dixit. You, know, you hear the D, D sound. It's really pretty fantastic. Dixit Dominus Domino Meo. The Lord said to my Lord. So in other words, God said to the guy who's uh, in charge, who's kind of you know, <laughs> making the rules for me. <laughs> The Lord said to my Lord. And notice the sibilant S sound on sede too. This is really cool. Okay, the performance is really accenting consonant sounds to allow the listener to follow the text or to find his part or her part when there's complex polyphony. The period brass here blends superbly well, not always the case on period recordings. Uh, here it's really great. The musical style changes with each line of the text. The often dense textures register richly. I also notice that uh, Pichon, the um, director of the ensemble here, he pulls out connecting elements from the previous track in his shaping of the occasional pedal point bass. So we still get that sort of humming sort of uh, pedal point bass here. It kind of thrums under the singers in the more densely orchestrated passages. The Sikut Erat section in the ending glorious section has a multiple church bell ringing effect that comes across strongly here. I'm going to play uh, the beginning of this track too because I want you to hear, try to see if you could follow the words because I want you to hear the sibilance, the D, 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 and then the sibilant S, the S when the word said is said. Let's listen.
Great chords, huh? Mm-hmm. Sede. I love that. You know, they're, they're really kind of helping you sort of follow the text yeah. there. All right, track three. This is a concerto called Nigra Sum, which means, and this is, um, is, which means I am black. I am black but beautiful. I'll explain in a moment. This is a, also a psalm. And the uh, tenor here, this is interesting because this is really a woman singing this text. Emiliano Gonzalez Toro is the tenor singing this and this is one of my favorite voices in baroque music today so this just makes this even better for me uh, we'll sample him later but not on this track now you'd think this text would be sung by a woman given its subject matter but it's composed for a tenor it's written in Monteverdi's uh, stile rappresentativo that he devised for the stage it gives him greater scope to illustrate and serve the expression of the words and uh, there's some of this in the previous Dixit Dominus too Emiliano Gonzalez Toro sings this solo, and he's one of the big attractions on this recording for me. This is really pleasurable in a way a church piece really shouldn't be. Although the words kind of do, um, it's a psalm. It's 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 one of the psalms, but uh, basically it says like this: "I'm I'm black, but beautiful means because I've been working in the field all day, and the sun's been beating on me. So the king invited me into his uh, chambers, and then we got it on, and then he said nice things about me." <laughs> nice, nice poetic things afterwards. That's basically what the text is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really odd to hear it here. But uh, the Song of Songs. It's not. I'm sorry. It's not a song. It's the Song of Songs by uh, King Solomon, attributed to King Solomon. Anyway, moving on to track four, Psalm Laudate Pueri, which means praise ye children. This has a lovely repeating polyphonic opening a cappella. The brass come in to punctuate the end of phrases. The arrangement of the voices and the accompaniment is well calculated to allow the listener to notice the entrances of new lines while previous ones are reaching their end in other voices, in, as in the Dixie Dominus. There are sections of homophony or voices singing the same text at the same time in harmony. As with the previous psalm, this one changes its musical style with each new set of lines. I can't give you a sample of that because we'd, we'd be here all day. you got to really <laughs> listen to this recording. The psalms both have been powerfully put across. At 5 minutes and 43 seconds, there is a beautifully distantly heard section of harmony on the Amen, and it's extraordinary. I've never heard it done that way. Sample that, track 4, at the end, the Amen. Track 5, Concerto, Purcra S, Thou Art Beautiful. We have the sopranos Celine Sheen and Perrine Devier singing this one. And this is from the Song of Songs as well. It's in the uh, Stile Rappresentativo, and I'm not sure which soprano is which. I guess we'd hear Celine Sheen first, since her name comes first. The setting has the voices intertwining in a way that I really love. Really, Monteverdi uses all of the techniques that attract me to the human voice in this work, basically, this whole set of works, the Vespers. Again, there's a harp-like instrument used to give an intimate feel to this very intimate text. Another great thing about this performance is that the continuo used varies. You get guitars, you get harp, you get the organ. It's 
just a real feast for the ears. We get a lot of variety on this recording. Okay, the psalm, Laetatus Sum, I Rejoiced. And we can notice the alternation of intimately scored sections with bigger, more thickly scored polyphonic sections by now. I enjoyed the ringing bell effect made by the voices at 2.15. I'm going to have to kind of show you what I'm talking about here. So let's uh, listen to that. All right, ding, dong, ding. Okay, I ruined it by talking over it, but that's okay. You should be listening to the actual <laughs> recording anyway. <laughs> Track seven, Concerto Duo Seraphim to Seraphim, or High Level Angels. This one features Emilio Gonzalez Toro and Zachary Wilder, also Antonin Rondpierre, sorry, as three tenors on this. This is written in a dramatic theatrical style. It's really operatic. The virtuosity is reminiscent of the aria in Act 3 of L'Orfeo, called Possente Spirito, if you know that opera. By the way, in this work, notice how Monteverdi attempts to portray the mystery of the Holy Trinity by having the words tres sunt, from three, is written as a triad, so we hear the three tenors singing the, those three notes. And then he brings the voices together on a single note, accompanied by only a fundamental note in the bass on the words unum sunt, R1. And you can hear that at 3 minutes and 50 seconds. I'll let you find that one. I love the way the word clamabant, which means cried out, is sung at the beginning as an echo between the three soloists to tone paint the next line, uh, one to another, alter ad alterum. There are vocal shakes on the Sanctus Dominus second line. Now, a shake, it's kind of like a, a trill, but it's a Baroque trill. They're a little different. You'd have to hear mm. it to to know what I'm talking about. They used to call them shakes, actually, in, in England, so I'll use that word. This is sung out operatically, and it works exceptionally well. Emiliano Gonzalez Toro is um, the first in each verse, with Zachary Taylor's lighter tenor answering. I think we hear Anthony Rondpierre in the harmony in the third minute, but I really can't pull his voice out. I know the other two voices from other recordings, and I'm going to talk about that a little more coming up. Track 8, Psalm, Nisi Dominus, Unless the Lord. And I love the pulsing, sort of steady working quality of the opening of this work provided by the vocals, painting a picture of the words. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And there's something about this rhythm that gives the feeling of work. All right, let's, uh, let's hear this. This is, pretty, mm. uh, this is pretty fun, I thought. Wonderful. It's kind of like an early uh, early mechanical rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that a lot. And it's, it's well, well done here. The movement goes on in this way with subtle changes for each line or set of lines, uh, beautiful and densely presented for the most part with some contrasting quieter sections. At the four-minute mark, we hear the opening work, that rhythmic pattern again uh, for the Sikut Erat section, you know, as it was in the beginning of the Gloria. It's unexpected here. And for that reason, very appealing and ear-catching. 
Then track nine, the last track on the first um, CD, is called Audi Cellum, Hear O Heaven. Now, this is really special because we hear Zachary Wilder and Emilio Gonzalez Toro in duet here. These two have been musical partners on other recordings, and you can kind of hear they just mix really well together. Zachary Wilder has the sort of sweeter, kind of more like boyish tenor sound, whereas Emilio Gonzalez Toro, also a tenor, has the deeper, sort of richer, more kind of resonant voice. This piece moves from monody to six-part polyphony. Echo effects were often used in the theater, and Monteverdi imports the effect into this work. In the first part of the concerto, the tenor solo is punctuated by an echo that repeats certain fragments of words to give the text a new meaning. This effect was also used in L'Orfeo, in Orfeo's final monologue, Questi i Campi di Traccia. Very operatic in the Monteverdi sense at the opening, with an Italianate tenor sung by Zachary Wilder's lighter voice, this time with Emilio Gonzalez Toro providing the echo voice. They were reversed earlier. The singing here really is stunningly beautiful, as is Zachary Taylor's voice. Let's hear a bit of that wonderful tone and some of the echoes, too. This might be a long sample. Okay, I don't want to spoil you there because uh, you've got to go and hear this. It's really great. I just love the tone of that voice, too. It's really great. Okay, at around the 4 minutes 45 seconds, the choir comes in for some rhythmic singing and then quiets down exquisitely for some more steady legato harmony. And that's only CD1. We have CD2 next. Track 1 on CD2 would be the psalm Lauda Jerusalem, Praise Jerusalem. And this has a relatively lively rhythm, almost dance-like, after the opening, there's some well-executed polyphonic melismatic singing. Melismatic meaning holding a single vowel and singing it on different notes. It's an effect, again, that's really pleasing to the ear and one that gives me a lot of pleasure, which is one of the reasons I love hearing Baroque vocals so much. It's fast, expressive, and complicated, and the text just flies by. There's rich bass on the downbeats provided by the continuo. I like the way the soprano voices poke out of the top of the texture at times. At 2 minutes and 49 seconds, the texture parts like a sea, and we're exposed to some lovely quiet singing by the women's voices. It's like a curtain that opens and then closes, a little magical effect, because the more powerful voices come back then. There's so many details to love on this recording, you really need to hear the whole thing. I'd love to sample every track, but even <laughs> in the track, we could just, you know, there's so many parts of those tracks that are worth sampling as well. Okay, the antiphon Santa Maria Sucure Miseris is next. Now, this is actually isn't part of the collection. This was um, taken from uh, Promptuarium Musicum, composed in 1627, long after, or published, sorry, in 1627, uh, long after uh, this work. And I guess it was just put in for uh, to fill some kind of gap. Now, there are two sopranos, Celine Sheen and Perrine de Villiers, who we've heard before on this um, recording. And then we were introduced to Lucille Richardot, the mezzo-soprano, another voice that I'm rather fond of. 
This work is inserted into the set. It features the three female vocalists, two sopranos, one mezzo. There's a mellow-sounding brass instrument, I'd guess a period trumpet or French horn or some kind of horn. I think there's cornetti and sack butts on here, looking at the oh, okay. notes. All right. Oh, I didn't check that. Okay. Uh, playing long-held legato lines. The vocals are heavenly, going for a smooth, angelic tone in harmony. We hear Richardot's lower, veiled tone at about 1 minute and 30 seconds as she gets a solo line. It's got a unique timbre to it with lots of muted color, and there's lovely harmonizing on this track. Track 3 on CD2, Sonata A8, or eight, Sopra Santa Maria, starts with some fantastic timbres in the brass, the entire text of this piece is Santa Maria Ora Pro Nobis, or Holy Mary, Pray for Us. It's mostly instrumental, with some vibratoless violins taking over from the horns in prayerful legato, then dancing for joy afterwards at about 1 minute and 10 seconds. I love the sound the brass are getting out of their instruments, even the attack, which has like a, a bois kind of sound to it in the lower sections. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like boys' voices, but they're probably the mezzo-sopranos, as boys aren't listed as part of this choir. So the mezzos are getting this um, kind of boys' voice effect here. They sing the text in monophony, same note, no harmony, is what that means. As the text is repeated, the instrumentals go through various variations of rhythm and tempo. Next we get the hymn, track four, Ave Maris Stella, Mary Star of the Sea, or Hail Mary Star of the Sea. The title literally means Hail Mary Star, but there are more words after that. A harmonized a cappella hymn with rich cascading sounds in the lower voices. The setting is mostly homophonic, which is harmonized with everyone singing the same words at the same time. So it's more like a chorale. But there's melisma in the lower voices, making the texture more interesting and dynamic. It's really a beautiful effect. It's refreshing to hear this after so much large-scale orchestral writing. For the second verse, violins entered to accompany the now solo vocalists. We hear a brief harp solo, gently played, in the second minute. The third verse is accompanied by violins again, and the strings get a solo section in the third minute. The fourth verse is sung by what sounds like uh, solo Lucille Richardot, although the booklet doesn't mention her here. And then after that, the uh, recorders get a solo section in the fourth minute. For the fifth verse, we're back again in the choir, with women's voices only singing the text accompanied by harp and strings. The harp plays the ritornello solo in the fifth minute, and I think that's Zachary Taylor, or I don't know who it is, singing the um, sixth verse solo with the orbo accompaniment. The a cappella chorus is back for the seventh and final verse, and they start quietly crescendoing to a mezzo forte. There's a male voice here, and I don't know if it's uh, Taylor or um, Rondpierre, because I don't know what Rondpierre's voice really sounds like. There's lots to delight the ear in this piece. All right, and then we get to the final Magnificat, and this is, um, well, there's, there's one more track at the end of this, but this is divided into several tracks. There are two Magnificats, as I mentioned, in the uh, collection, and we only get one of them on this recording, and that's the first one. If you listen to the John Elliott Gardner recording, this is the... Um, the first Magnificat, or at least it starts as the first Magnificat. This is a rather long prayer, so it's divided into different tracks for certain verses. Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum, sung by Perrine de Villiers, the soprano. Monteverdi composed two, as I said, we're hearing only this one. I guess to get the sense of a single service, as opposed to a presentation of a catalog of music. Uh, Pichon put only one Magnificat on this recording. 
Devier gets the spotlight for the entire section here in the opening Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum text. It's a long text. It's divided into 12 tracks. It begins powerfully with women's voices soaring upward and the men join in afterwards. And a full bass on the organ pins the entire texture down. Devier approaches this without vibrato matching the violin tones. It's a chaste sounding tone. Track six is Et Exultavit, featuring Emilio Gonzalez Toro and Zachary Wilder, my favorite duo of tenors. Uh, Gonzalez Toro has the uh, deeper voice here. The two voices sing in polyphony, with the chorus providing counterpoint. The singing here is operatic, dramatically, and strongly projected from both singers. Track seven, Quia Respexi, has really attractive, smoothly played brass, with the men's voices singing vibrato-less monophonic lines, putting across a pious chaste feeling. The brass are what's attracting my ear in this section. The texture lightens up with strings and recorders toward the end of the section, then the brass are back with fanfarish lines for the lines, all generations shall call me blessed. Track 8, Quia Fecit, features Etienne Bazola and Nicolas Bruimans, the basses. We haven't heard these voices yet. This is the only time on the album we'll hear them, in fact. They're both rich and sing operatically with power, Appropriate for the words, quia fecit mihi magna, because he that is mighty. Track 9, et misericordia. Great contrast with the low men's choral voices singing very quietly on the words, et misericordia, which means and his mercy. The women's voices come in by the 42nd mark like the tones are floating heavenward like incense. It's a lovely effect. The low men's voices are back, and we go up to the voice spectrum again. Track 10, fecit potentiam features Lucille Richardot as the soloist. She's the mezzo-soprano. It's her only solo on the album, and she goes for a vibratilist tone here, so not very operatic sounding. Chirping recorders and theorbos, I believe, accompany. They might be guitars, I'm not sure. And track 11, Deposuit. The brass play harmonized melodies at the beginning. I love the sudden change to violin and organ bass pedal after the chaste-sounding male vibratilist vocals. Track 12, Esurientes, harp and recorders, an interesting and pleasing combination. Sopranos and mezzos sing the text in harmony. Um, I want to point out that um, in each of these rather short sections of the Magnificat, the um, instrumentation keeps changing, and this is really makes this um, recording special. It's really a lot, there's a lot of ear candy for this part. Track 13, Sushepit Israel. Celine Sheen and Perrine Devier again. The two sopranos go for something closer to an operatic tone here, with light vibrato coloring the voices. They sing those intertwining lines that I love, and I haven't sampled them yet, so let's hear them. Gorgeous voices there. Track 14, Sicut on CD2, Sicut Locutus Est. Strings followed by distant brass play the thematic material. The mezzos sing the text. 
Track 15, Gloria Patri, Emilio Gonzalez Toro, and Zachary Wilder again. There's a great organ tone here and highly operatic singing by Emilio Gonzalez Toro on the word Gloria, with Zachary Taylor providing the echo effect. Uh, the voice is reversed from the earlier piece that we heard um, on CD1. Uh, the choir features the women's voices and accompanying chastely. And then the final um, section of the Magnificat, Sicut Erat, um, as it was, okay, or as it is. Uh, the chorus sings this with polyphonic entries. It's got a lovely polyphonic amen at the end and reaching for the skies in the high voices. Extraordinary. The final track on the album, track 17 on CD2, is the Conclusio Versiculum et Responsorium, Domine Exaudi Orationem Meum, meaning um, Hear My Prayer. This is uh, Renaud Bress, the bass is back. And we end as we began with the voice of Renaud Bresse acting as sort of the bread and the sumptuous dagwood of a sandwich. We last heard Bresse's voice more than an hour and a half ago. This section features that Gonzaga musical coat of arms that we heard in the first track with the brass fanfares and dancing interludes. On the Benedicamus, Bresse gets some more solo time. He can get very sensitive. He's followed by a cappella choral singing. And I love this whole section, so we'll sample this one more thing from the 42nd mark. He's singing Benedicamus Domino, and the choir sings Deo Gratias, and then the entire piece ends with an Alleluia, as we heard in track one. Let's just hear this last track. And that goes on. That's melisma for you. There's four words, and it's taking a really long time to get through. <laughs> anyway, that's the album. And I have to say, this is an extraordinary performance of recording in general, and of this work in particular. The theatrical aspects of the individual movements are played up, and the entire work comes across as dramatic. But that's not to say that Pichon sees this as an opera. It's a set of church works full of timbral pleasures and excellent, beautiful singing. We often talk about the French ear for timbre, and Pichon puts his timbral ear to work on this recording, making the work extraordinarily sensual in quieter moments and dramatically powerful as an Italian work can be in the louder, more thickly harmonized sections. All of the soloists are fantastic, but for me it's the Swiss tenor, 
born of Chilean parents, Emiliano Gonzalez Toro, hence his name. His gorgeous low tenor that attracts me most strongly. I also loved Zachary Wilder. The two of them are just so good together. If you're as enamored of his voice and of Zachary Taylor's voice as me, I'd recommend two more recordings that they both feature on. One of them is um, called A Room of Mirrors, which is on the Gemelli Factory label, and you can download that. Then there's a a work by uh, Cozzolani called Vespro on the Naive label, where um, Ijemeli appear again. Uh, so check those two out. They're both excellent recordings. Also, you should probably hear Emilio Gonzalez Toro in the title role of Monteverdi's opera L'Orfeo, also on the Naive label, where he gets vocal lines uh, similar to the ones sampled here. All in all, this recording is full of pleasures, both great and small, a lot of them residing in the timbral combinations decided on. This is easily now my go-to work, recording of this work, although I still love the Gardner work. It's, um, it's kind of lighter in its feel, and, a, and it's got a little bit of more kind of uh, an energy to it. This is going for just the pleasure of sounds of this recording. I found this overwhelmingly good. I have overwhelming in my notes, too. It's <laughs> really overwhelming in the amount of music and different sounds to take in. Hmm. It'll take quite a few listens to get the most out of it. Solo voices, choir, various combinations of instrumentation, even that continuo is varied, as you pointed out. I guess my favorite part <laughs> instrumentally are the fireworks of Cornetti at the yeah. beginning and end, the boom, and bubbling up like, you know, fireworks. I wish they yeah. were a little bit louder just <laughs> because I like them so much, but the balance <laughs> right. is really good. And overall, the sonic experience is great. If you have a nice system and a big room to listen to this in, the space just surrounds you with all types of great sounds. And yeah, really enjoyable and moving experience listening to this. Yeah, and I have to say, I um, I listened to this at a fairly loud volume in my little Japanese house, and I certainly hope the neighbors enjoyed this because they definitely heard it. <laughs> right? I was really just feeling intense pleasure from this. I really loved it so much. So I turned it up. Anyway, yeah. I guess they'll forgive me as long as I keep quiet for the rest of the week. <laughs> you know, some things I like to listen to with headphones for detail, but this yeah. is one where you're shorting yourself a bit if you don't get a big yeah. space full of sound uh, filled up because it's very impressive. Yeah. Okay, our next recording, second recording. This is also a little uh, gem, too. This one is called um, Topos, 20th Century Greek Orchestral Music. Yeah. And um, so we've been getting some uh, Greek jazz lately, so I thought I'd throw in yeah. a Greek uh, classical album. And this one turned out to be a real gem. This is by the uh, Thessaloniki State Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Zoe Tsokanu, uh, with uh, Noe Inui on the violin, and it's on the Naxos label. I'd like to read from George Julius Papadopoulos's uh, notes to introduce this album, because he's really rather articulate in describing this music, or the album. The title of the album, Topos, has multiple connotations for Greeks and non-Greeks alike. It means land or place, and so you can think about uh, topographical, meaning like a map that mm. has like mountains on it and stuff. So land or place, and in the expression, Otopos mu, my land, it effectively signifies the land or place of origin. Be it small or large, a village, a city, a country. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines topos as also a traditional or conventional literary or rhetorical theme or topic. An analog in music would be the musical topos, which is a stylized, modified, original musical sign 
with extra musical associations. For example, a horn call would refer to hunting. You know, so we're mm. kind of, we hear something. And then there are also tope boy in uh, music. For example, the uh, descending chromatic bass means death. <laughs> it's <laughs> worth knowing because when you hear that, there's something sad happening in the music. You can kind of sense it mm. if you don't pull that out. The idea behind this release is that each composer on this album worked in various lands. Cyprus, the Ottoman Empire, England, France, Germany, Russia, and Greece. But each drew inspiration from his topos, be it a city like Smyrna, now Izmir, which is in uh, Turkey, and uh, for Kalamiris and Konstantinidis, these two composers, or a country like Cyprus for Mikalidis and Greece for the other three. The musical topoi they shared, however, are enclosed within Greek folk music. Well, this kind of puts the entire um, cultural appropriation idea um, to bed, I would say, <laughs> because you're pretty much inspired by the culture you're living in, and it might not be your native culture. So, for example, Russ and I, living in Japan, I mean, we're, we're about as far from Japanese culture people as we can be, but I think this has become, we've absorbed part of it now, and we, we can't really get rid of it, so it's part of who, who we are. So I, I don't think you can Certainly. kind of claim that we're, um, you know, not, you know what I mean, like that we would be um, appropriating Japanese culture, because it's... It's sort of in us to an extent now, although not as much as, as it is with native Japanese people. So that sort of happens. Um, I think about the um, Italian composer Carlo Domeniconi. Spent a lot of his life in uh, Turkey, and he, he uses these um, Turkish modes in his music because that's who he's become, really. So that happens here, too. Anyway, let's go through this music. Solon Michaelidis is the first composer. He lived 1905 to 1979, and this um, piece is called Dawn at the Parthenon, written uh, 1934 to 1936. Uh, he was Greek Cypriot, and his style contains elements of modality. <laughs> it certainly does. Mm. Uh, Byzantine chant and folk music, but his earliest works from 1933 onward are infused with the aroma of French Impressionism. This is Papadopoulos's uh, words, not mine. And that's really true, the aroma. Okay, And this work is a pure example of those influences. Yes, it certainly is. There's a lot of French Impressionism in this music. But then there are these wonderful Greek-sounding um, modes. It sounded pentatonic to me. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It was originally titled Morning Awakening in its 1933 version. And it then became the first of the two Greek symphonic pictures and got its current title. This has an atmospheric beginning with ticking pizzicato bass over a droning note in the middle range. There are also light harp arpeggios. Uh, the booklet note describes this opening as opening with harmonics in the muted strings, dyeing the sky with the bronze tint of the dawning light. Ooh, well, this guy's got away with words. Yeah. I can tell you, that was really nice. Let's see uh, if we can hear that. Um, the entire beginning conjures some magic via orchestration. I thought this was absolutely beautiful. Anyway, let's hear the opening.
I should have let that trumpet go a little bit. Anyway, that's what uh, dawn in the uh, in Athens sounds like. <laughs> uh, we hear that distant trumpet melody as I was fading out, which is said to reveal the uh, clear horizon. By 155, we're hearing mo a more complete melody in the winds, which represent bird calls signaling the awakening of nature. After that, there's a chorale-like section with the brass highlighting peaceful happiness, according to Michaelidis. The melody sounds pentatonic, or at least modal, and is immediately appealing for that reason. It's got a sort of mystery to it, evoking something ancient, appropriately for a piece about the Parthenon, or with the Parthenon in the background. By the fifth minute, we hit full sunrise with fortissimo chords, complete with cymbal crashes, and that is one majestic sun, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. By the end, the Parthenon is gloriously bathed in sunlight. This piece is really beautiful in a light, exotic way. You heard the opening, but it just builds from there. It just gets more and more interesting. It's highly evocative, too. It should be heard outside of Greece more often. At 5 minutes and 45 seconds, it's an ideal orchestral concert starter. Tracks 2 through 4 are by uh, Manolis Kalomiris, lived from 1883 to 1962. This is his work, Island Pictures, composed in 1928 and revised in 1939. There's a solo violinist in this work, it's Noe Inui, and he had a Greek mother and a Japanese father, which is why he has that uh, Japanese family name. Hmm. The most imposing figure of the Greek National School of Music was Kalamidis. He was a composer, educator, textbook author, music critic, polemicist, administrator, and holder of numerous official positions. He shaped the country's musical life for more than half a century until his death in 1962. You really want to be this guy's enemy or you'd get nowhere. <laughs> he was from Smyrna, which is now Izmir in Turkey. This was um, originally a four-movement work, uh, reduced to three movements when it was revised. The first movement is called To the Dawn. It's got a Greek title. I've um, <laughs> changed them all to English here. Andantino Semplice e Calmo. The booklet note gives the uh, Greek and Roman letters, and then it gives the English. This starts calmly, too. The solo violin gets the main melody when it comes in after the evocative opening. I love these modal harmonies. The violin line does tend to circle in its modal and probably pentatonic pattern. After the two-minute mark, a Greek dance erupts out of the texture and takes over, but it doesn't hang around for long. The opening with its somber bass line comes back. There's a prolonged ending with a harp accompaniment at one point, and very pretty all the way through. The second movement is called, um, or labeled, Lullaby, and we're going to sample the beginning for the violin entry and the lush, exotic orchestration. Let's, let's hear this. Those um, modal harmonies, the modal melodies, too. I like that bass pulse that rocks the baby there, too. That's kind of nice. That is really, that's really sweet, yeah. The violin plays in its mid-range uh, rather slowly and red-bloodedly in its tone, and the slow, languorous rhythm and mode used to make this work sound almost Arab at the beginning. 
Uh, the violin gets a lot of trilling in its line. Here it often trades lines with the orchestral soloists. Um, by the third minute, the violin's tone has gotten lighter, despite its occasional double-stopped chords, and the piece ends gently. The third um, piece in this um, three-movement work is uh, Susta, marked Vivo, and it originates from an ancient, lively Cretan military dance. A susta is a dance. Believe it or not, at 7 minutes and 9 seconds, this is the longest movement on the album. Hmm. Um, there's a tambourine uh, marking the downbeat at the beginning. It has quick changes of rhythm in the line, as the bass now marks the pulsing downbeat. Uh, it speeds up and gets aggressive in the first minute. When it lightens up, the violin often gets a winding melody, leaving the heavy dance rhythm to the orchestra. Changes come either in the rhythm or the textures, but the point is that they come quickly, one hard of the heels on the other. All of these textual variations are inventive and keep the ear engaged. There's beautiful orchestration in all three of these pieces, a quality that marks the entire album so far. Just past the six-minute mark, the violin gets a virtuosic moment, then hands off to the orchestra to end the piece in exciting, fast dance fashion. Two works, two great discoveries so far, and the discoveries continue with the next uh, set of works, Yanis Konstantinidis's Dodecanesian Suite No. 1 from 1948. This is a six-movement work. Konstantinidis was born in Smyrna as well, which is now Izmir in Turkey. He's got an impressionistic harmonic language and is a great orchestrator, as you will hear here. Track 5, Movement 1, Andante Sostenuto Allegretto. The bassoon intro is haunting like the rite of spring, but yeah. this is much more sweetly played and orchestrated than that. It has a hazy, dawn type of feel to it. Nice use of the winds and the melody and evocative orchestration. At 2 minutes and 16 seconds, a more lively, vigorously energetic section begins. The melodies are attractive. Second movement, Con Moto. This is track 6. There's a steady rhythm to this, but I wouldn't call it dancey. There are hints of the dance in there. It's quick and ends before I can get a good grip on it, really. It's very short. Very appealing, though. The third movement, Allegro Piacevole, going to Vivo e Giocoso, is mid-tempo. I'm sure I've heard this one before. It's lightly dance-like. The following section is more urgent than dance-like. There's some pretty bell-like percussion, maybe a celesta that peeks in, and the piece just sort of peters out at the end. Movement four, this is uh, track eight, is Andante Mesto. Hazy strings and a low brass instrument, a trombone or euphonium or something like that, smoothly played at the beginning. Winds take over in the higher register in the next phrase, and we'll hear that evocative trombone or euphonium again toward the end. Track nine, movement five, Andantino quasi parlando to allegretto semplice. The opening is traded between wind instruments, and this has a lovely feel to it too. It kind of puts me in mind of the British composer Frederick Delius in its mood. Mm. If you know his music, it kind of sounds a bit like that. Let's hear a bit of this, the opening. See what you think if this is a Delian to you. That, that sounds like Delius to me. This is his textures. But mm. uh, I think he might have that in his head here. 
Uh, the section changes at 55 seconds, though, to a light dancing rhythm, sort of folk-like in feel, and this lasts to the end. The uh, last movement, uh, movement 6, track 10, Andante Lento to Allegro Vivo Ma Non Troppo, starts slowly and evocatively. Evocative is a word I'm using a lot. These works do indeed evoke uh, the Greek landscape, hilly, ancient, dry. It's another folk-like melody. There's a crescendo with a pounding tympanum in the background. And after this, the piece turns into a fast dance, rustic sounding with its double-stopped violin chords. The circling melody is handed around the orchestra, and it ends dramatically with high energy. But wait, there's more. Constantinidis composed his Dodecanesian Suite Number no. 2 the following year, 1949. And we get that on this album, too, mm. in tracks 11 through 16. The first piece, the first movement, track 11, Lento e Solenne, to Allegretto Scherzando, to Tema con Variazioni, con Moto. Uh, so many of these works have these soft, hazy openings like this one. It has a beautiful wind melody with a mode and timbre that gives the sound of an aulos on the English horn. Aulos is the ancient Greek wind instrument. It's kind of nasal sounding. It sort of recalls ancient Greece to me, and one could imagine a ballet set in time to this music. Let's sample this. nasal sounding instrument at the end there. I'm really going way past the fair use uh, lengths here. I hope that's okay. <laughs> anyway, at 2 minutes and 25 seconds, the Allegretto Scherzando begins. It's got a dance quality. Um, this slow to fast juxtaposition is a structural technique with Constantinidis. Uh, the theme and variations starting in the third minute has a catchy melody to a dance rhythm and is uh, beautifully orchestrated. Second movement, Scherzino, Vivo e Leggero. It almost comes on like a continuation of the first work in the suite. It's a lively mid-tempo and rather playful in tone. It keeps this tone and is fairly brief. The third movement, track 13, Andante con moto to Andantino mosso. So each of these tends to have like a two tempos because it goes from a song to a dance. It starts languid, dewy, sparkling, slow opening with percussive chiming effects. There are a lot of wind instruments carrying the thematic material. And just before the first minute, we switch over to the Andantino Mosso, which has a Greek dance rhythm to it with a heavy accent on an odd beat, common in Greek dance music. The fourth movement, Lento e Mesto, Allegro Moderato, beautiful bassoon melody at the beginning, taken over by an oboe. Lots of winds, and they're very evocative of Greece to me, due to an ancient tradition of wind instruments in that country. Chiming percussion and gentle accompaniment are included. The Allegro Moderato has a marked rhythm like a Greek folk dance. The rhythms of these are distinctive and has a rumbling ending. The fifth movement, Lamento, Lento Funebre, is slow as the tempo marking suggests. The melody is languid and warmly orchestrated when it's in the strings. Winds, of course, get their chance with it. It keeps this tempo throughout. 
And the finale, the uh, sixth movement, track 16, is moderato quasi narrativo, tu allegretto scherzando, tu allegro feroce ma non tanto. The oboe takes the narrative role in the opening with the strings repeating. It starts quietly as do all of these pieces. At about the one minute mark, the allegretto scherzando starts. It's got a dance-like rhythm with accents on odd beats. The allegro feroce starts at about the second minute mark and warm, cheerful orchestration of this dance rhythm brings the suite to a close. Finally, we get the great uh, Greek composer Nikos Skalkaras. Um, his five Greek dances of, I think, 36 that he wrote in this set. Um, wow. It's written from 1933 to 36. And here we're hearing an arrangement, 1938 to uh, 1940 to 1947. And this is an addition for string orchestra by Walter Gurr. Now, these are arrangements of, I think, string quartet versions of these works. And originally, these were fully orchestrated by Skalkadas. And if they were, I really kind of wish we could have heard those. The string arrangement here is very good, but um, after all the color that we've heard in the other works, it kind of comes as a bit of a letdown. Despite exactly the, my comment. Yeah, yeah. I missed those sweet woodwinds when we suddenly yeah. lost them for the last piece. I would have put this maybe earlier in the program. Right, me too. Well, I think they say it for last because he's like the most famous name, I think, on the right. program. But uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's great composing and, um, you know, fantastic writing. The voices are great if you can mm -hmm. listen into that. But yeah, following the other works, it kind of, the arrangement comes as a letdown. Not because it's a bad arrangement, because the strings are all, you get this uh, string sound. It's like all legato, right. you know, it's just effects strings can make. Anyway, here we go. Uh, the first one is... Uh, Epiroticos, which is marked moderato. Scalcatus' approach has more passion to it than what we've heard up to now. There's a strong attack and heavy accent on the rhythm. Uh, this is pretty straightforward with an appealing melody. Number two, Creticos, Allegretto Moderato, is a slower dance, square in its shape and repetitive with easy-to-follow melodies. There's a middle section with different material at the same tempo. All right, I'm going through these pretty quickly, but keep your ear out in these, if you listen, for... Uh, the inner voices, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the um, the writing. Uh, number three, Tsamikos, Allegro Moderato. This rhythm struck me as rather interesting. At about the 25 second mark, the slower, quieter middle section comes in, and the piece ends forte with emphatic final chords. Number four, Arcadicos, Moderato. Pizzicati and the violins accompany the cello melody here, and the pizzi occur on every beat of the measure. There's some variation in the arranging, with legato occasionally taking over. This comes across as romantic as it nears its end, and it ends quietly. And number five, clefticos, allegro vivo. An aggressive rhythm propels this fast, heavily accented dance. Uh, the energy is maintained throughout the pieces, 2 minutes and 11 seconds. And again, in this arrangement, uh, the music comes across as rather romantic because of the strings. This is a comfortable and beautiful album. The opening works are all highly evocative and exotic with their modal harmonies and gorgeous, subtle orchestration. There's really nothing not to like here. A lot of the music sounds traditional with its pentatonic harmonies and evocative dance rhythms. There's a lot of subtlety in the orchestration. Incidentally, I should mention, we didn't hear any of the dance rhythms in my samples. I was just too enamored <laughs> with the opening of these pieces, and I really wanted to put that across. But they're in there, trust me. One of the things that struck me was how appealing all of the thematic material was in these works, both in their melodies 
and orchestration. It's hard to choose any favorite works, but I think the sheer variety of Greek folk and dance music character of Konstantinidis' works made the biggest impression on me, as did the opening work. Oddly, I found the Skakatis works the least interesting, probably because of um, that they're string works following these beautifully, richly orchestrated works that came before it. Never mind that, this is an enchanting album of music that reflects a Greek culture that goes back to the dawn of our Western culture, and I was captivated by it. Yeah, it's all ear candy here. Folk melodies, dancey rhythms, and a few Greek modes mixed in in places. I really enjoyed especially the woodwind parts on all the works, the wonderful tones and blends. Yeah, you get a little dancey section and then these more kind of misty beginnings and it was enjoyable right straight through to the end yeah i thought so too so i'm on cloud nine here and i'm getting to um my last work our contemporary composer of the week a composer we've heard earlier this year nimrod yes. bornstein born in 1969 his piano works now we heard his piano concerto back in uh, may right oh sorry april 17th it was uh, 2023 that's an episode 111 i believe here we're hearing mostly his etudes for piano and a few other piano works. They're played by the um, pianist Tra Nguyen. She's a British Vietnamese. A family name is Nguyen, I'm told. And this is on the Grand Piano Records label. Bornstein, he's British-French-Israeli, according to uh, his, mm. I think it's his Wikipedia page. He was born in Tel Aviv, grew up in Paris, and Vladimir Ashkenazi is a fan. Hmm. Uh, and he's probably a fan of these works, too. Nguyen describes Bornstein's music as inspirational and rewarding. This is the pianist talking. Bornstein says that the etudes were inspired by Chopin. Okay, well, they were inspired by Chopin, but they didn't remind me of Chopin at all. I'll mention who they remind me of when you hear a bit of them. They employ Bornstein's personal use of polyrhythms, a technique that Chopin didn't really use, although he did use um, hmm. sort of, you know, hemiolas and things like that, which is like one sort of um, two beats against three beats and that sort of thing, which allow melodies to glide in new virtuosic and colorful ways. And I got to tell you, with these polyrhythms being played by a single pianist, these sound really difficult to play. This is like a whole new way of thinking if you're um, learning the piano in any kind of traditional way. All right, let's listen to these. Um, one through six, Etudes Opus 66. These were composed in 2019. They're hot off the press. Just before the uh, the pandemic, wow. Hmm. You, you could have had a lot of time to uh, practice them at home if you uh, <laughs> if you had picked them up. Anyway, number one is the Ostinato Etude. And the Ostinato is in the form of an arpeggio wave, which keeps changing in the left hand. The right hand is very Chopin-esque in its flourishes of keyboard melody and figures. It's an attractive piece, and Nguyen has a great technique and a rather heavy attack at and above the forte level, yet she gets gentleness in the quieter sections too. All voices come across with clarity. I especially like the sound on the harmony at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, which crescendos to a roiling finale. Number two is the Half Moon Etude. This starts with some stark chords and a pedal note in the bass. The melodic material in the right hand climbs upward often. There's a lovely gentle sound at uh, 50 seconds. There are all sorts of intriguing, growling harmonies deep in the bass in this and in the previous piece. This is also an attractive conversation and attractive playing as well. It kind of sounds conversational to me. Number three, tango etude. 
starts sounding a bit like, not a tango to me, but a habanera from Carmen's great aria, L'Amour et en oiseau rebelle. But it's, of course, a tango rhythm. The feel gets lost pretty quickly in the massive piled-on figuration that follows, but the rhythm comes back when outlined by the bass line. This sounds really tough to play. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I think I've discovered a new, uh, you know, highly technical pianist in Tra Nguyen. This is a really fantastic performance as well. There are a few dissonant harmonies in this that simply pass by. A nice, gentle, trilling ending with a jokey last tango figure at the very end. Number four is the arpeggio etude. Harp-like arpeggios creating a wave of harmony at the beginning as the right hand plays water droplet figures. This sort of gets into some roiling figuration as it goes on, and Nguyen does well to keep these constantly moving chaotic voices balanced so that the ear can follow them. Very important in piano playing, by the way. Number five, Kang Ding Queen Ge Etude. I don't know if I said that right, but this means um, Kang Ding Love Song in Chinese, and it's a really famous folk song. You can um, type it into YouTube and hear the... Um, original Chinese folk song. You'll probably recognize it too. It's pretty famous. It's a folk song of Kanjing in Sichuan province, one of the most popular songs in Chinese culture. Um, here, Borenstein builds his etude around the famous melody. And I'll give you the um, opening of this piece, and uh, you'll get to hear a little bit of what he um, does with this. those polyrhythms starting to sneak in. Track six, etude number six, Mephisto etude. This starts with an off-kilter rhythmic figure. A melody starts, then rapid figuration, and a sudden fast dance that quickly breaks up and becomes sinister. There are a lot of quick changes of material in this particular etude, and it reminds me a bit of Bornstein's Piano Concerto, which we heard on an earlier podcast in April. It's very mercurial, and again, Guyen keeps everything moving. She actually has an excellent sense for the polyrhythms used in this and the previous etudes. This one really seems a polyrhythmic challenge more than the others so far. It ends with a sort of loss of energy as a high note on the piano ticks its way out of hearing. All right, tracks 7 through 12 are another set of etudes, also arranged in a set of six as Chopin's were. Actually, his were 12 each, right? There were 24 of them total. I'm thinking of Debussy's. They were six each. Okay. These are Opus 86, composed in 2020. So, etude number seven. He sort of picks up where he left off with number six in the previous set. So, number seven would be the first of these. This is the Staccato Legato etude. This is going to remind me of a work that we're going to hear again later. Opus 86, number one. Legato note followed by staccato. And uh, keeping that pattern... 
There are sprinkling dissonant harmonies in the right hand. By the 42nd mark, this gets warmer and more romantic sounding. There are some hypnotic polyrhythms in there as well. This is fairly brief at under two minutes, and we should hear the opening for this. This is staccato followed by legato. Let's listen. For the first 10 seconds, I was thinking, oh, I could play this. And then uh, <laughs> those polyrhythms came in, and it was all over for me. <laughs> anyway. uh, number eight, uh, the chords etude. You really don't hear many chord etudes, but here's one. It's got rising and falling chord patterns, and it's mostly played forte, mostly in crescendoing and decrescendoing waves. At one minute, a prettier Chopin-like harmonized theme is heard in the upper end of the piano briefly. Nguyen gets a strong, solid tone out of the piano and has a magical way with the arpeggios at 2 minutes and 26 seconds in the piano's upper end. Number 9, Hidden Melodies Etude. The melodies here are hidden by the slow polyrhythms, which start the piece. It's intriguingly as though the melody is discernible through a set of slalom flags set up by the rhythm. And uh, yeah, in order to know what I'm talking about, I'm going to want to play this one too. So let's hear the opening of this one. And again, that one sounds really tricky to play. Mm. <laughs> Those tricky rhythms keep coming in. Anyway, this sounds, yeah, uh, Nguyen impresses with her rhythmic ability in this piece. Number 10, Brazilian Etude. This has a habanera-type opening rhythm over which sprinkling high-end of the piano notes are played, I'd say, in polyrhythm. It's a pretty brief piece. Uh, number 11 is the Toccata Etude. A lighter touch is required for this rapid polyrhythmic piece. I have to say, Bornstein's polyrhythmic writing beguiles the ear. This sounds like a real challenge. By the one minute mark, the material straightens out rhythmically a bit and features a rapid figuration by the one minute and 30 second mark. Rapid figuration and a big ending follow. And then number 12, Japanese Gardens Etude. This starts out with water droplet-like notes spaced out in time in the higher end of the piano. The water droplet metaphor seems to work well because we get polyrhythms following quickly. All sorts of arpeggio and trill-type figuration follows, and we end with an arpeggiated rush as to two staccato chords that punctuate the ending. Let's hear the opening of this piece. Thank you. 
hey, those polyrhythms come in, and then <laughs> it's just really amazing. <laughs> you got to really listen to these all the way through because there's some the way they sort of develop is very interesting. All sorts of arpeggio trill type figuration follows. If I said okay, and then we get that arpeggiated rush to two staccato chords punctuating the ending. And that's the end of the etudes. We get a few more pieces. Tracks 13 through 15 are reminiscences of childhood. Opus 54, 2012. I was actually talking to uh, Nimrod Bornstein on uh, Gmail. He's He sent me a few Facebook messages too about number two of these. And I should have asked him about the other two because I don't know <laughs> what the reference is. Hmm. Anyway, number one is called Lucilla's Beehive. This work is simpler than what we heard in the etudes. So it's more sort of um, encouraging to the, the piano playing side of me. I don't, I don't, I don't really play anymore, but um, the ear side, not as much after all those complex polyrhythms, because it's a little simpler, but it's very, they're very good pieces. The bass line is in the upper end of the piano in Lucilla's Beehive. It's an ostinato and the melodic material is heard in the mid range. Nguyen is in gentle mode here and is very expressive. There are some beautiful sections in this piece, especially at around the uh, 2 minute and 10 second mark. And after that, I don't hear polyrhythms in this piece, which is why I think it sounds <laughs> easier to play. But my ear is kind of on those polyrhythms now, so I kind of still mm. want to hear them. But I think I picked up the occasional cross rhythm figure. Uh, the piece ends with a gentle figure in the high end. Number two, Uchti Tuchti. According to the composer, now he told, he told me this. Uh, the title means um, porcupine. And that's why there are all of these uh, staccato notes. Um, he thinks the language is Russian because his mother, I think, used to say this um, word, ukti tukti. Huh. I asked our, our Russian friend <laughs> that, <laughs> that we both know, who sings in a choir here, about it. And she says it is um, Russian, but it doesn't mean porcupine. It's a kind of exclamation. And his grandmother and his wife's grandmother used to say the word, Bornstein's grandmother and his wife's grandmother too. Anyway, it's the, um, oh, I didn't write what it was. It's a translation to a Beatrix Potter story. And um, it's, instead of giving the title of the story, they gave this title, Ufti Tufti, which is an exclamation, according to our friend here. Hmm. Oh, but then the main character is, is um, in that is not a porcupine, but a hedgehog, which is kind of pointy too. So there you go. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> Anyway, it starts with a staccato sort of dancing rhythm. It smooths out for some figuration. There are a lot of trills in the middle of phrases, and I'm enjoying the separation of voices that Nguyen achieves in the middle of this piece after the one-minute mark. There are sudden changes into new rhythms and a sweeping arpeggio landing on a final chord pattern to end the piece. The third of these three pieces is called the Melancholic Mobile. This has a two-note bass line in the upper end of the piano. The theme is played above that. The piece starts off very gently and is rather music box-like in its sound, if not its rhythm. It doesn't sound mechanical. It sounds like we've got some brief polyphonic passages, or Nguyen is using some serious pushing of the tempo. There's some intriguing harmonies along the way. The piece remains for the most part in the upper register, but there's a brief, fairly aggressive bass line midway through, and the piece ends gently. Track 16, Water Droplets in Venice. Opus 75, number two. I had mentioned water droplets earlier in the Japanese Gardens etude. A lot of these works hang out in the high music box end of the piano, as does this one. It has a water droplet music box feel with a lot of gently cascading figuration and arpeggiated chords. We actually hear a bass note for the first time one minute in. 
At about the 1 minute and 30 second mark, there's a romantic sounding melody, but it goes away quickly and we're hearing the water drop patterns again. There are a lot of quick rhythmic changes without any discernible polyrhythms happening. It sounds measured with quickly changing rhythmic patterns in the line. It's got a playful ending on a single staccato bass note. The last piece is called Lullaby, and this actually sounds like a polyrhythmic piece, though it's slow. The right and left hands sound like they're playing two different rhythmic patterns. The piece is gentle. In the second minute, a more straightforward, or no polyrhythm, cheerful, playful section is heard, followed by two note staccato handoffs between left and right hands. There's a kind of fragmented rhythmic pattern under the rather pretty melody after the third minute. Uh, then a more polyrhythmic pattern comes back. This piece keeps the listener on his toes, or her toes, uh, never mind the pianist. It's lovely, though, and a calm, restful ending to the album with its solid, last resolving chord, followed by a very quietly played, cheeky high note on a different harmony. <laughs> you got to be listening carefully. If you walk away, mm -hmm. you might miss it. So, are the Bornstein Etudes going to become repertoire for pianists? Why not? They're all very attractive pieces, worth a listen, and they develop a technique that um, pianists need to uh, develop, and one that I really never developed, and that is like polyrhythmic playing. While he says he was inspired by Chopin, the frequent use of polyrhythms put me in mind of the George Ligeti etudes, because he uses those a lot in his works. These sound exceptionally difficult to play, Bornstein's etudes, because of the polyrhythms, which will be a new technique to a lot of pianists. But Trana Guyen is certainly up to the task. She plays with great authority throughout and has a strong, solid tone, even in quieter passages, which come across, nevertheless, with the required gentleness. Once she gets to the pieces after the etudes, her touch is more in the gentle range. It's pretty amazing playing of some interesting music, and I'd urge all those interested in piano music to hear it and to really uh, start to listen to Nimrod Bornstein's music in general. It's actually very interesting, and there's quite a bit of it at this point. We've got mostly etudes here, so it's very episodic in nature. But even in these short compositions, Bornstein includes a lot of musicality mm -hmm. that Nagoyan sensitively puts across. Uh, the melodic ideas stand out over contrasting rhythmic figures and the independence of the hands. The harmonic language is familiar, but it has enough surprises to draw you in and surprise you in places. And the independence of the differing rhythms and techniques and all the things the hands have to do sounds really challenging. But I think they should be very attractive to pianists for developing both technique and musicality together. And it's one of the challenges when you're building up your technique on an instrument is to make all the kind of exercises have a musicality. But I sense that that's built into these in the composing. So, yeah, I think they would be uh, something really good for pianists to work on. I hope they become popular. Yeah, so do I. Anyway, some interesting piano music, something we really need, I think. Yeah, and so far his music has been all really enjoyable and interesting, so... Yeah, yeah, looking forward to hearing more and more of it. Adding him to my list of people to look out for. Absolutely. And we're in touch with him, too, which makes it even better. So there you go. All right, on to the jazz side. I've got a lot of variety this evening with some names we've heard before and some new faces as well. And we're going to go Greek again in jazz. Okay. We, not in the last episode, which was our standard summit with same difference. But the week before that, we heard a debut recording of a new Greek pianist, Paris Gagastathis, and we really like that. It was all original compositions and really lively. 
Now we're going to go back to one of the central names in the Greek jazz scene, sort of the godfather of the current generation of musicians, and that's pianist George Contraforis with his trio. And here, what caught my eye or ear for this recording is the French harmonicist Laurent Maure. And we don't get to hear a lot of harmonica recordings, although we did hear a few episodes back Yvonic Prenet, another French harmonicist, and we really enjoyed his recording. And so I thought this will be an interesting combination. It's called, now you're going to have to help me out on this album because my French pronunciation is not so good. I think this is Vendu. Vendu, oui. Which sweet means wine. Sweet wine, yeah. Yeah. You got to dip your cookies in that stuff, though. That's, <laughs> the dry wine is the one for dinner. That's a dessert wine, so this is uh, after the meal. Right. This is released by Laurent Mar under his name. Came out September 15th. Now, George Contraforis, we've heard, I believe, at least five times on the podcast with his own releases and as a member of other ensembles. He was born in Athens, Greece in 1967, and he studied classical piano at the National Conservatory in Athens. At the age of 16, he took his interest in jazz music and took improvised lessons with a pianist, Marcos Alexiou more about him later. Uh, he also studied with Jim Beard and Jarmo Savolanian, and he's got a bachelor's degree and master's degree in jazz performance from the Sibelius Academy in Finland, and he's played piano and also organ with a lot of famous and outstanding musicians, David Liebman, Houston Pearson, Eric Alexander, Lou Donaldson, Benny Golson, the list goes on and on. He's been teaching jazz piano and organ for several years at the Ionian University, and in Athenium Conservatory in Greece, also Sibelius Academy in Finland. And he is a one-time teacher of another great pianist who we really like, Spiros Menesis of the Spiral Trio. So he's got a big influence on the younger generation of jazz musicians there. Laurent Marr, the harmonica player here on Chromatic Harmonica, that is, was born in Paris in 1970. He began his musical apprenticeship at the age of 18, playing blues and rock music. And then at the age of 24, he changed over to jazz music and followed a jazz course at the CLM in Paris in 1994 with the encouragement of the biggest name in jazz harmonica, Toots Thielmans. He won the International Harmonica Competition in Germany. Yeah, chromatic harmonica is a very interesting instrument. And we've got Laurent Marr on that and George Contreforce on piano. Ntinos Manos on bass. I hope I said that right. It's N-T-I-N-O-S. And an even harder name to round out the list, Thanos Hatsianagnostos on drums. And we're going to get things started out with Loop. This is one of Mars' originals. Get started with bass and piano ostinato riff for four measures, uh, drums with a light Latin beat, and Mars harmonica with some improvisations join in for a couple more rounds, a little drum break into the 16-measure dreamy melody that has contrasting halves to it. They go around twice, and we get to hear the very interesting sound of Mars harmonica, which can get surprisingly deep tones. Uh, very nice phrasing with vibrato and bends. So let's hear this so you can get an impression of what this sounds like.
Yeah, really nice sound there. Hmm. He gets some more improvisations after the melody over an eight measure interlude that's like the intro. And then Contraforest is up for a piano solo. It's light and rhythmic with clean articulation, getting into some zippy runs midway through. And Mara's up next with some rhythmic riffs to start out. And he keeps surprising with creative melodic ideas, interesting techniques, and changing tones. Contraforce has some fun bouncy chords backing him up, and Mar connects back to another round of the melody and an outro clipped just short of eight measures for a sudden ending. Track two, Space Blues, and this is a tune by the previously mentioned Marcos Alexio. And so as I learn more about this kind of history of Greek jazz, it all kind of started in the late 70s. I guess there was a club in Athens, the Placa district, called George Barakos Jazz Club. And there's some players there, guitarist Zois Philippidis and drummer Tarantalidis, teamed up with this pianist, Egyptian-born Marcos Alexio. And they formed a group called Sphinx, and they released an album with that name in 1979. From what I've read, this is sort of the beginning of the modern Greek jazz scene, and George Contravoros studied with Alexio. Hmm. So this is one of his tunes here. It's light and sparse drums that started out. And the melody is a slow 12-bar blues in 3-4 time with unusual chords and a lot of syncopation in sync with the trio backing, that is with the harmonica. They go around twice and Manos is up first for a bass solo here. He has a big ringing tone, working up lots of rising and reaching phrases. Mar follows, getting some bluesy hints and lines that reach way up high. And the trio keeps things sparse but tight underneath. And I like Hatianagnostos' light and tasty drumming. And Contraforest gets a solo with some cool, evenly played extended lines and bluesy tinges. And a couple more runs through the unusual melody with some final phrase repeats. Finishes up the tune. Another more original, Le Vos de Tricards. Yeah, yeah, little Tricard. I don't know what a Tricard is. I gotta look that up. <laughs> a fun eight-measure intro of descending chord sequences and playful harmonica intervals and licks into a fast swinging minor waltz. The construction is eight-measure A and B sections twice, then a repeating C section with ringing piano and one-note bass and more drum accents that get it really grooving. Then there's a final 14-measure section with descending chords like the intro and then synced rising chords and harmonica to a break uh, into a solo for Mar. He floats like a butterfly over the same sections for his solo. Let's hear a little bit of that. We'll pick it up from the C section of that melody and into his solo. Agile, good. like a butterfly. Yeah, by the way, a tricard is an undesirable or oh. ex-convict. <laughs> Somebody like <laughs> nice that. Nice title. Somebody's just, you don't want around, basically. 
So the end of his solo has a little break for Contraforce to start his own uh, with lots of enjoyable rhythmic figures and some fun harmonic dissonances in there too. They have some fun repeating that rising line from the last melody section into some drum soloing and a final round of the melody with a jarring final chord from Maurer wraps it up. Hmm. Track four is the title track, Von Du. This is by George Contraforce. Another waltz here, a ballad this time, and Contraforce gets it started with a six-measure solo piano intro. Maurer takes the gentle melody over chords and rising arpeggios. It's just harmonica and piano in a duet. The melody's 32 measures. In the last section, there's a nice little synced-up line with the two of them on descending quarter notes. Then there's a little soft uh, four-measure interlude that the bass and drums pick up out of into an improvised solo from Mar. It's lyrical and gentle, getting some soft high register notes. Contraforce has a solo next with a light touch of chiming chords and flowing lines. So let's check this out because, you know, his piano playing is always really tasty. Nice touch. Uh, Manos gets a ringing melodic bass solo on this one too, and once more through the melody to a pretty ending of rising piano notes. Track five is Madame Chipperpole, another Mar original. A bouncy and bendy bass intro gets joined by a kind of New Orleans style beat, and Mar comes in with some chordal figures on harmonica uh, that sounds so full you'd think it's an accordion playing here. This 16 measure lively section suddenly chills out into a seemingly halftime Latin feel in the next section. Let's check out the beginning of this because it's kind of unique. changes moods there. Hmm. Contraforce gives it some groove with rhythmic chords and the snare action is back on the drums to infuse energy and it goes into an energetic bass solo from Manos. Mars back too over the busier beat for a bit with the solo starting with chords and then it chills out into the Latin groove again and picks up into a piano solo from Contraforce that goes through the changing fields as well. Mar returns for the melody again and some more improvisations over the busy beat on the drums to the end. All right, help me out with this title for six here, Mike. Oh, Ombre Lumière. 
Yeah, light and shadow. Shadows and Lumiere light. Right. This is a a Maurer original. A dreamy sound with a slow six-beat meter, but anticipated downbeats. There's a four-measure intro with soft chiming piano chords and drum toms. Maurer plays the longing melody expressively. There's a section where Contraforce builds intensity with rolling figures underneath, pushing Maurer into some really edgy tone. And Contraforce solos next with some high-register trickling lines and pretty melodies. Mars back for more melody and a dreamy ending of rising figures over rippling piano. Track seven, the final track is Campinas by Contraforce, which is an area of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Contraforce starts it out with a rubato but forward pushing solo piano intro of rising phrases. He sets a beat with chords and the bass and drums are in with a clicky samba type feel. Mar takes the melody that is made up of little variations on short phrases over a repeating eight-measure chord progression for 32 measures. Then they use the rising phrase idea for a little bridge section before getting back to a couple sections of the previous idea. The chords change up building to a little break for Mao to start a solo with some fun rhythmic chord blowing, and he works into more speedy lines, showing off a lot of agility. And Contraforce has an animated and rhythmic solo too. Then Mao's back to play through the sections again, and they give it a fun ending with some cool low harmonica chords into drum fills. Let's check out the ending just to see how everything wraps up here. That's it. It's an intriguing harmonica sound and exciting solo lines from Maurer, plus the always classy piano playing of Contraforce, attractive original compositions from both of them, with the one original from Marcos Alexio. A variety of styles and rhythms with solid bass and drum work to round it out. I like the sense of sparseness in the arrangements here. The parts are easy to hear with no crowding from overplaying and an excellent job on the sonics on Mr. Mar's own release here. It's a very clear-sounding and enjoyable recording. Yeah, I thought it was clear-sounding as well. It's a good word. I like a hard-hitting drummer, too, like we heard at the end. He's a, he's a pretty hard-hitter yeah. all the way through, and I really enjoyed that. In fact, this whole ensemble is pretty interesting. I've always got an ear for George Contraforest. He's got this really classy, like, tasteful yeah. playing. But for me, like, my ear always went to Laurent Ma- Maurer because the harmonica is kind of an instrument that I don't really know all that much about, and the chromatic harmonica especially Hmm. he really takes it to some places um that you don't normally hear one of the things he does we didn't hear this in the samples is blow into several you know notes at once and they're not always like in you know you know harmonious they're kind of like clashing notes and i kind of rather enjoyed that and that he did that it just made these uh pieces a little spicy and interesting Otherwise, you know, the tracks are all pretty straightforward and easy to enjoy. I mean, it's a fairly short album at 40 minutes and seven tracks, but uh, that's acceptable. That's, that's mm. certainly enough. So, yeah, for me, it was the um, the harmonica playing, and uh, it was really interesting all the way through. I'm actually pretty surprised at how um, expressive the harmonica can be. You know, you can hear yeah. these, the, the tapering off at the tone at the end, these little expressive things, very subtle 
that a harmonic uh, player can do. So I really enjoyed this too. All right, next recording, go over to the trumpet corner here with Mr. Alex Norris's latest release on Steeplechase Chess Moves. This came out September 15th. Norris is from Columbia, Maryland, where he began studying music at the age of nine. And after high school, he got a scholarship to Peabody Conservatory of Music, and he graduated there in 1990. In 95, he got a master's degree from the Manhattan School of Music, and in 2007, a doctor of musical arts degree from the University of Miami Frost School of Music. In the interim, in the early 90s, he went to New York City to pursue a career as a jazz trumpeter, and he played with the Village Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, Toshiko Akiyoshi's Jazz Orchestra, Maria Schneider's band, and he's been a member of Betty Carter's Jazz Ahead and played with a whole list of top names in jazz. Slide Hampton, Joshua Redman, Brad Meldahl, Chris Potter, Carl Allen, John Patitucci, Brian Blade. Uh, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. But he's a name we should hear more of because I think he's one of the most mature and interesting improvisers out there on the trumpet and a really good composer, too. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. after hearing this. And we heard his previous recording, Fleet from the Heat, also on Steeplechase in episode 36, Mirror, Mirror. Mm -hmm. And we've got most of the same cast here, except for the piano chair, which was uh, Jeremy Manasia last time on the previous recording. And here we've got Rick Germanson on piano, Alex Norris on trumpet and flugelhorn, Ari Ambrose, tenor saxophone, Paul Gill on bass, and Brian Floody on drums. The recording starts out with the title track, a Norris original, and we're going to have mostly originals, almost all originals, with one standard to break things up in the middle of the program here. Chess moves. It gets off to a swinging start with a fast tempo. The melody has a repeating 16-measure section with horn figures that rise with the changing chords underneath. After the repeat, there's a contrasting 8-measure section with a rhythmic change-up over drum fills, and then Norris launches into a solo. Let's start it out and get a feel for what's going on. that solo from going on. That is hot stuff. Yeah. They stick to that 16 measure pattern and right there, continue listening, please. You'll get a good first impression of Norris as a soloist who connects ideas smoothly into long extended lines. Listen also to how he varies his articulation nicely on the way. They use the eight measure section with the horn lines we heard at the end of the melody as a transition into Ambrose's tenor sax solo. He starts low with shorter phrases, building into longer lines, and he's swinging hard. 
He adds in some double-time phrases and edgy tone for a good intensity. And Germanson follows with a piano solo with a light touch and sense of space between figures that creates anticipation. Gill gets a bowed bass solo on this one too, with speedy melodic bowing, and another run through the melody sections and final eight measures to finish it up for a hard bopping start to the album. Track two, also an original by Norris, Short Waltz, a swinging waltz with good motion from Floody's Dancing Cymbals. There's an eight-measure intro with ringing chords from Germanson, and the 16-measure horn line melody is made of short unison phrases, but ends in a nice little dissonant split. They go around that twice, and Norris is first to solo again, skillful weaving through the chord changes here with a lyrical flow and soft articulation. Sounds like flugelhorn on this one. Ambrose picks up on Norris's final interval idea to start his solo and keeps the lyrical smooth style, but with some edgy toned phrases. Gill has a bass solo plucked this time with clear high register ringing tones, and Germanson follows starting with chords and then elegant figures dancing between them. The horns and piano trade eights with some drum soloing from Floody before getting back to the melody, and they hold out that last dissonant horn chord for an ending. Hmm. Track three, also by Norris, Too Many Trips. A little funky and bluesy twist here with some fun syncopated horn lines in the 38 measure AABA melody. The repeating horn riffs stretch the main A sections of the melody out to 10 measures, and the contrasting B section has some nice drum accents on the syncopated horn figures. Let's check it out. So Ambrose goes first on the solos, this time on tenor sax. He finds some bluesy spots and adds in intense cries. Norris builds an interesting solo here with really nice rhythmic figures and note choices getting up a bit high on the way. Let's take a little listen to some of what Norris is doing on this one. guessing as to what he's going to do next and some interesting articulation as well. Germanson gets a rhythmically playful piano solo on this one, works in some bluesy tastes, and they wrap it up with another run through the melody. Track four is No News, also Norris's original, a 12-bar blues structure here. The first time around, the horns are in unison over just the bass and drums, and they split into harmony on the repeat, and the ending is a little more syncopated, punctuated by the entrance of Germanson on piano. Norse is up first to solo, and he has some really tasty harmonically weaving lines. Germanson's next, building good tension with spaces and repeated licks. Ambrose has some fun ideas to navigate lines through the chords here too, and the horns trade fours with Floody's drums before running through the melody and ending it with some final phrase repeats. 
Track five is the only standard Richard Whiting's My Ideal, a song that goes all the way back to 1930 from the musical comedy Playboy of Paris, which was sung by Maurice Chevalier. Hmm. Well, it's a relaxed solo piano intro from Germanson with descending left-hand intervals, and Norris takes the melody solo on a Harmon muted trumpet. It's just a duo here, no bass or drums, and Norris continues on for a solo with good motion and energy, considering that it's a ballad. Germanson takes a gentle solo too before Norris returns for another run through the melody. They slow and stretch the ending for Norris to get some final muted lines. Very classic and tasty. Yeah, I called the opening of this Satiesque. Yeah. Reminded me a little bit of those gymnopedian a little bit, yeah. Right, the left-hand uh, intervals, right. right? Track six, back to Norris's originals, Bossa Tranquillo. It's an interesting modal bossa tune with rhythmic horn lines. The melody's 24 measures of three different sections. The final section has longer horn lines with neat rhythmic bass and left-hand piano figures underneath. And they go through it twice, and the second time has a little four-measure tag section at the end of it. This is a really neat composition, so I want to check this one out. Robinson solos first on this one with some percussive chords and two-handed figures mixed in, and Norris has a really good flow through his solo on this one, uh, making it lyrical but snappy at the same time with cool double-time figures. Ambrose takes a serpentine approach here, uh, starting with longer notes into smoother, intense lines, and Gill gets a clearly articulated bass solo that reaches up high. Once more through the melody, finishes it up. Track 7, There It Went, also by Norris. A boppy tune here with a 32-measure melody. It's kind of unique, like uh, A, B, A, C pattern. It starts off with boppy horn lines, but the second half of the B sections get the horns into modal minor lines over one-note bouncy bass. That happens on the second half of the final section, too. Norse is up first for a solo, connecting and building extended lines of ideas. And Ambrose swings hard and has a lot of fun on his solo here. And we haven't heard him yet on the sax, so let's take a listen to him on this tune. intense playing. Jermison has a piano solo and Gill gets the bow out again for his bass solo on this one and the horns trade eights with Floody before going through the unique boppy melody again. 
Track eight, Norris's Lights Out, a calmer feel here with held out ends of horn phrases on a 32 measure AABA melody. The A section has a kind of muted hi-hat rhythm over snappy bass lines, and it changes up the feel to more of a swing over walking bass and cymbals on the B section. It's an easy swing and walking bass for the solos. Norris goes first with relaxed phrasing to start this one, but lines that burst with ideas. And Ambrose has some varied articulations on shorter phrases between speedy smooth double time ideas. Germanson has a classy piano solo here with little tumbles and playful phrases. I'd like you to hear a little bit of that and see his light approach on the piano. little tumbles there yeah in the end there's there's something really close to like monk's uh trinkle tinkle oh yeah, yeah and i think the sax actually directly quotes it in the solo before i wasn't sure i was hearing like a lot of um familiar things in the sax solo so i think he was quoting quite a bit i'll have to check that out again yeah gil gets a bass solo on this one too before they take a final run through the melody track nine i should say so also a Norris original. And this one's right out of the 1960s, somewhere in Lee Morgan's neighborhood <laughs> for this mm-hmm. tune. An eight measure intro with a cool rising bass and left hand piano line sets up the funky staccato horn lines over rhythmic piano chords. And you got to hear this one because it just feels so good. Yeah. you right back to that time well you've got to go around twice on a blues like this and they do and then ambrose is ready for some fun soloing norris keeps some of the clipped phrase ideas to get his solo going here and he also uses repetition to build up tension into new ideas and germanson has some bluesy kind of bobby timmonsy moments in his solo and then we get a nice surprise with some new eight measure choppy horn lines uh, leaving Floody's drums to fill out the final four bars for a couple rounds before returning to the melody. And the final tune, For a Change, also by Norris. The rhythm section gets an eight-measure intro featuring big percussive piano chords from Germanson. Then the horns come in with an easily swinging 36-measure melody over tight hi-hat from Floody and half-note bass from Gill. Germanson gets to solo first as things swing along over walking bass and ride cymbal, and Norris is fluid in phrasing and swinging next, really connecting melodic phrases, but with great little pauses. And Ambrose starts out with shorter phrases into longer swinging lines with some playful upward swooping figures on the way. Things come down quiet for a snappy bass solo from Gill with nice dexterity and melodic ideas. This was my favorite bass solo by him on the recording, and we haven't heard him yet, so let's take a little listen to our final sample for this one. 
Some nice melodies in there, ringing it out. Or they take the melody again uh, with a little drum fill and horn phrase tagged on to make an ending. And that finishes it up. So it's right in the modern hard bop tradition here, all done at the highest level of musicianship. The one standard, my ideal, played as a duo, breaks up a program of varied originals by Norris. The melodies are all attractive, the structures are familiar but with little twists, and there's a lot of variety from boppy to bassa to ballad. Musically mature solos that connect ideas and take you on little melodic journeys from Norris and Ambrose. And Germanson has a relatively light touch and playful ideas. And Gill and Floody keep it tight and have their own little solo spots to shine as well. All in all, winning chess moves on this recording. <laughs> I guess I guess so. One of the things I liked about this, uh, Norris's uh, like attack on the trumpet really struck me. There's something really like palpable about it and then the mm. tone follows and i really liked that it's not i don't want to use the word percussive but you do get like a sense of the notes starting right. you know and right. in a way that i don't from other um trumpet players or anybody else I, that really kind of intrigued me and it really had me kind of zeroed in on him hmm. for the whole album i liked hearing him throughout and he's got a good variety of players who complement and contrast with him i would say the piano was a contrasting instrument because he played like in a really gentle yeah sort a of bit style. lighter approach he had this light touch and yeah, it always kind of quieted the excitement down and a gentle feel. And the sax was the compliment with those uh, quick uh, bop-style lines. Right. You know, it was really hard-hitting. The album itself is enjoyable, and it, uh, you can't really call a bop album light. It's not a light album, but it's like it's very listenable. I'll say right. that. I really dug, uh, of course, like you, I should say so, for its groovy 60s feel and for the solos being on the hotter side. Yeah. Yeah, here's a trumpet player who's as good as any in the top level, but doesn't get mentioned as much as he should. And we're here to change things like that. So let's let's change it now. Yeah, yeah. go ahead and listen to this album right away. Yeah. All right, our final recording, a vocal release. I always save the vocals for last, or usually mm -hmm. I think I do. And that's Ms. Leslie Harrison, Let Them Talk. This is on Cellar Live, and it's with the wonderful organ trio featuring Ben Patterson. This came out on September 14th. Harrison's bio says that she grew up in New York and North Carolina. She's a co-founder of the Jazz Gallery Club in New York. That was along with late trumpeter Roy Hargrove and the entrepreneur Daryl Fitzgerald. And she released her first album, Soul Book, Volume 1, in 2020. And she's also an on-air host on jazz radio station WBGO. 88.3 FM from Newark, New Jersey. She's got a program there come Sunday on Sunday mornings from 8 to 12. Now, she says that she loves the Great American Songbook, but that wasn't the music of her childhood. She grew up on music from Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Marvin Gaye, and the Delphonics. Sounds like she's my age, yeah. really. <laughs> We've heard a few recent jazz recordings of Stevie Wonder's music by Pat Bianchi, organist, and also... 
Fabrizio Bossa, Italian yeah, trumpeter. It's a great record. And we also heard that great recording, Golden Moments, by saxophonist Charles Owens, where he created jazz versions of songs that he and we grew up with. Right. <laughs> Particularly, what we really liked was uh, Super Tramp's Breakfast in America, right. done as a jazz version. That was a cool surprise. So we're going to get some of that same idea here, which is cool, because, you know, the standards were the pop songs of the day, but not of a later generation's day. So right. I'm happy to see people taking pop songs that they grew up with and we grew up with and making nice jazz versions of them. But we're going to get that mixed in with some older tunes as well. And I think what makes this recording really gel together well is a combination of making the tunes fit her style and then the great grooves and atmosphere that are created by the organ trio here. This is her quote from the notes. Quote, the songs I selected for this album share a message of bringing us together in our collective human experience. The music moves us in the way a preacher moves their congregation. We get up off our feet and hold on to the words and what they stir in us. We are transported to the absolute truth of the moment where we can join in the experience together. This is what the world needs right now, and it is what I want to give. So keep that in mind as you listen to this recording. Leslie Harrison's on the vocals. Ben Patterson on Hammond B3 organ. He was also on her previous recording, if you want to check that out as well. Matt Chertkoff on guitar. And Pete Zimmer on drums. Executive producer Corey Weeds. And also here Raymond Torchinsky. Engineered, mixed, and mastered by Sheldon Zaharko. Produced by Matt Chertkoff and also supervised by Don Pemberton. This was recorded at Monarch Studios back in February of this year. So we're going to start out with the tune Close Your Eyes by Bernice Petgery. 1933, she was known as the Queen of Tin Pan Alley. And we heard this tune in our last episode played by pianist Mike Jones. But if you go back, probably there's a great swinging version. Yeah, that's it. Tony Bennett. 1961, My Heart Sings recording. Here, uh, the sound of Cherkov's guitar starts it out into a four-measure intro from the trio. And when Harrison enters with the vocals, they give it a neat stop-time treatment. I like the slight hesitation in her phrasing, and we get a first impression of her voice that has a warm, dark quality to it. The organ bass gets pumping, and the relaxed swing of Zimmer's cymbals and Cherkov's chords are really cool. It's a 32-measure AABA tune, and they keep it chugging through the B section. Let's just check out how this gets started. Close your eyes. Rest your head on my shoulder and sleep. Close your eyes and I'll close mine. Close your eyes. Let's pretend that we're both counting sheep. Close your eyes. Oh, this is deep. Yeah. I like the combination of that stop time and then the little hesitation in her voice that really pulls you right in there. When Chertkoff gets a guitar solo, he's got a really warm tone and relaxed phrasing with little bluesy tastes over the minor chords. Patterson follows with a great organ solo as well, and then guitar and organ trade fours with Zimmer's drums for a round. Check out Patterson's first repeated note exchange in that mix there too. Harrison's back for another run through the tune to finish it up with a little vamp stretched over the organ bass. All right, track two, 
Love Won't Let Me Wait. This is a tune composed by Vinnie Barrett and Bobby Eli, and it reached number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1975, sung by Major Harris of the Delphonics. And Nancy Wilson also had a nice recorded version of this as well. Well, huge swelling organ chords from Patterson to get this one going. Chertkoff sprinkles in little pearly 70s R&B guitar tones. Great organ bass on this one, too. And a settled slow groove for Harrison to ring out the romantic ideas in the lyrics. Nice phrasing and dynamic contrast. Chertkoff has a sublime guitar solo, and Patterson chops up some cool stuff on the organ with a real slow burn. Now, let's check out these guys doing their solo work on this one in the middle. sound good well Harrison comes back for another round and she reaches a great climax on the explode and ecstasy lyric that's like the perfect combination of music and lyrics to uh, have it peak and she works it to a satisfying ending with some nice organ garnishes from Patterson right there too now we'll go for a good old standard Gershwin's Embraceable You for track three. Zimmer brushes it in on the toms into a little intro. It's a nice relaxed swing for Harrison to take a tour of this standard. I like her enunciation and phrasing, taking some more liberties as it goes on. Patterson solos first, getting in some fleet zippy lines on the organ, and Chertkoff has clear, pearly restrained melodies with a great final line of descending intervals. When Harrison returns, Patterson fills in the gaps nicely with organ decoration and nice final chords at the end for Harrison's final U. Hmm. Track four, Let Them Talk by Sonny Thompson. Uh, 1959 recordings from Little Willie John. That's the one I know. There's also one by Lulu Reed. It's a swelling intro and old-time 12-8 R&B groove that comes down to make things subtle. It's a 32 measure AABA melody. The second half of the B section goes to minor, and that's where Harrison really pours it out from there to the end of the phrase, reaching up higher. Patterson has a restrained gospely organ solo, and Chertkoff adds in some bluesy double stops before Harrison is back on the B section. Nice little pause before the ending for her to float some lines before the final chords. Now, the one I saw in here that I had to go to right away for some <laughs> album, Fly Like an Eagle, of course, Steve Miller. And yeah. everyone from our generation knows this tune. The original had organ on it as well. Well, because everything in R&B, rock and pop in the 60s and 70s still had organ on it. Right. And this was from Miller's album of the same name in 1976, although... You can find earlier live versions on YouTube from like 73 before wow. it was fully formed. In, you know, in the recorded version, we know those are kind of neat to check out. 
Here, Patterson gets it going with an awesome bass and chord groove. Add in drums and funky guitar, and you know it's going to be good. Harrison's phrasing here is really nice, stretching and pushing in all the right places. Well, you just got to hear it. <laughs> this is a really cool version. It's really great. There's loads of organ on it, too. Yeah. This song is kind of funny in that it's sort of in the 80s and the 90s, it sort of dis disappeared. And then yeah. artists started picking it up again. And then the 2000s, I think the late 2000s, mm. 2010s, I heard a few uh, you know artists record it and things like that as, as a cover. It's kind of funny. It just kind of came back. I guess it was always kind of in our minds. I always yeah. liked it myself. I always liked it. Here, yeah. check it out. We'll hear the beginning. ominous organ chords gets it going there yeah nice mm -hmm. stuff Chertkov's solo here is great jazzy with some cool lower register ideas and patterson swells things up with ominous organ chords when harrison comes back check out the nice muted guitar underneath from Chertkov, and harrison really belts it out for a big climax before adding some tick tocks as it comes yeah. down for a soft ending yeah great interpretation i thought Track six, A Lover is Forever, a tune by Steve Goodman and Fred Knobloch. By Etta James, 1993, The Island Sessions. You can find this tune. James's version, interestingly, has just two acoustic guitars, one with slide. Well, here they give it a slow R&B groove with a drum click on two and four. The eight measure intro has some nice bluesy guitar from Chertkoff over the minor chords into a little break for Harrison to pick up into the tune. It's a slow burner. Harrison makes it smoky and sultry and Chertkoff adds little bluesy nuggets. This is one you got to check out too. has swelling ghostly organ chords helping to push the bridge of the tune and they keep the little breaks into the A sections. Chertkoff's guitar solo is really tasty with bluesy bends and Patterson picks it up on the bridge and chatters it into the final sections with some great sounding organ. They cut to the bridge for Harrison to return with the vocals and push it to a climax and it fades out with some bluesy guitar after the final section. Yeah, turn the lights down for this one. Track 7, What a Little Moonlight Can Do. Harry Woods from the 1934 
British movie Roadhouse. Uh, it's time to shift into high swinging gear for this one. The trio gets it kicked off with an intro of unison guitar and organ lines, and the organ bass is really chugging under Harrison's vocals, but she keeps her phrasing relaxed. This one gets her down in her lower vocal range, but she works up higher and has fun on the ooze, and Patterson and Chertkoff get speedy melodic solos and then trade eights with Zimmer's drums. Harrison's back for another verse and keeps the energy pushing to the end with ooze and woos. It's happy and energetic. Track eight, You Are Too Beautiful. Of course, Rogers and Hart from 1933, the film Hallelujah, I'm a Bum, <laughs> where it was sung by <laughs> Al Jolson. Patterson gets it started with the solo organ intro, bringing Harrison in with the vocals. It's soft and intimate at the start. Guitar and Zimmerman's brushes join in quietly on the repeat of the A section, and Chertkoff gets a really delicate guitar solo that tiptoes like trying to not wake the baby, and Patterson follows with a gentle, high-register line of organ work. Harrison comes back on the B section to sing it through to the end, and don't miss the final organ line descending deep into the bass at the end of the tune. And the album wraps up with one of the most recorded tunes of all time, Yesterday, Paul McCartney's tune from the Help album, 1965. I guess there's more than 2,200 versions of this <laughs> tune. It's kind of interesting for a pop song that has that unusual form of seven measure main sections to it. Hey, why not one more version? They give it a slow R&B groove with a click on two and four. Chertkoff has an original guitar riff for the four-measure intro, and Harrison brings out the melancholy mood, pushing all the right spots in the lyrics. Chertkoff adds another tasty guitar solo, and Patterson gets a little organ spot before Harrison returns on the B section and finishes it up nicely, taking it higher on the Love Was Such an Easy Game to Play line. And that wraps up the recording. Harrison has a distinctive voice and a style that lets her take in and phrase a wide variety of songs to make them her own. That's added by the amazing atmosphere created by the organ trio of Patterson, Chertkoff, and Zimmer. They create something out of this mixture of jazz standards, R&B, and rock tunes that's cohesive and seems like they were all meant to go together. Patterson's organ sound and solos are great, and Chertkoff's solos are warm and fluid. Highly recommended. You'll enjoy this one for sure. I thought so, too. A lot of these songs um, are familiar to me, like I said, from my youth as well. And I like this both for its intimate-sounding gospel-inflected vocals and for the organ playing, which added a lot of atmosphere and was recorded right up front, too. So you could oh, yeah. really just soak up that tone. It was really great. Uh, they were always really present in the headphones and uh one day i'm going to listen to this on my uh house speakers too and i'm sure they're yeah. just gonna make that sound great too the guitar playing spacious and tasteful and a lot of these songs like um you know love won't let me wait and fly like an eagle really especially uh not to mention yesterday uh were songs of my youth and i remember the originals from the radio i don't think i ever owned um they love won't let me late wait single but i certainly heard it enough times <laughs> On the AM radio in the car, probably. Right. Yeah. A good deal of this album lands more on the gospel or R&B side of things, um, but that's no problem. It was good to hear them again, so tastefully presented. The album sounds like it was recorded in the studio. All of the instruments come up clearly as a result. It's a really good-sounding album, and uh, the vocals are sensitively picked up as well. Really mm. good work by the engineers, I'd say. Quiet details picked up clearly. Harrison's voice appeals to me, and this is the keeper. Yeah. I'm going to have you to get a copy of this. Yeah. Another great Seller Live mm -hmm. release. Of many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, well, that does it for this week. Uh, a lot of good music here. Everything is yeah, this, really everything easy was good. Yeah, to enjoy week. here. Yeah. yeah, no challenging stuff here. Excellent music, but easily approachable. I think. Let's say, let's say not challenging, but always stimulating. Okay, that's it. none yeah. of it was boring. Very yeah. good. And we're ahead of the game. We've got next week's uh, show and uh, <laughs> albums all lined up. So, what have you got uh, for a classical preview? What do I have? I have another. Um, Baroque guitar album because uh, I was so kind of like intrigued by that um, Valois one that we did like two weeks ago. I wanted to hear right. another one, and another one came out you know, just oh, wow. like at around the same time. So I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, let's program this and see what it sounds like. That's another unknown composer. This is the first album of his mm. music from the Baroque era. Let's see, I've got Bartok piano concertos by the great Pierre Laurent Aimard, who's kind of disappeared from a recording, you know, over the last. Oh, wow. um, few years and this uh, just came out I was like oh I gotta hear this guy again because I really like his playing a lot mm -hmm. and we have another um, contemporary composer the German um, Stefan Heuke his um, four of his um, woodwind sonatas which are all the same opus number so <laughs> they're all for huh. different instruments I think that's kind of odd but I was curious to hear it so we'll be talking about that and in jazz we're gonna have a all sax pack next week we're going to have a debut from a really hot young player who plays right in the old hard bop style. Uh, you're going to enjoy that. We're going to go over to Italy and uh, check out some Italian jazz. And then the only one I'll give away, we're going to hear Michael Deese's first all Barry Sax recording. Yeah, I can't wait for that, really. We just love the Barry Sax yeah. on this show. Yeah. So we've got that to look forward to. And also next week, by that time, we'll be able to give you a little bit more detail on our next interview that's coming up as well. So, All right. as always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our, our glowing neon logo. Be sure to stick around to the end if you've made it this far to hear the little promo from the Same Difference podcast and check out their link in the description if you want to brush up on your jazz standard knowledge. And if you haven't heard last week's guest episode with them, be sure to go back and do that. And we'll be back again next week with episode 135 and a lot more great music. If you want to find out what those recordings are and listen to them ahead of time, well, we'll have that playlist up shortly after this episode on Deezer. And you can find a link to it as well from our Facebook page. So until next time, keep listening and we'll see you for episode 135. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.